Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Over the next couple weeks, instead of having a conversation with Bishop Barron, we're going to share the two halves of a talk Bishop Barron recently gave at the 2020 Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. The talk was titled The Real Presence of the Eucharist, pretty self-explanatory about what it's about, but he gave it in response to the findings of a recent survey from the Pew Research Center, which found that only 30% of Catholics in the Pew, so these are Catholics that are actually going to Mass and showing up, believe what the Church teaches about the Eucharist, that it's actually truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So like many of us, he found this study alarming and distressing and thought it's time to reinforce this core central belief of the Catholic faith. In this first half of the talk, we're going to get a little background on the biblical basis for the church's understanding of the real presence, namely the great sixth chapter of John, John chapter six, which is the bread of life discourse where Jesus commands his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. From there, Bishop Barron takes us on a tour of the patristic witness. In other words, what the church fathers, the earliest Christian theologians, had to say about the Eucharist. So we get to learn from St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, Augustine, and more. If you watched the recent episode we did on the church fathers, this will bring you back to a lot of those key figures in the early life of the church. So that's what we'll listen to in the first half of this talk, and then next week we'll listen to the second half. The whole talk is about an hour and 15 minutes long, so we're going to break it up into about 35-minute segments. So sit back and enjoy the first half of this talk from Bishop Barron on the real presence of the Eucharist. Enjoy. Well, thank you very much for that, and good morning to everybody. Always... Always a joy to be here in the arena. Uh, I first started coming to this Congress back in 1997. I'm becoming a very old man. And uh, it's always a joy to come back. It's one of the great events, as you know, in the whole year of the uh, Catholic Church. So thanks for coming, and thanks for coming for this specific uh, talk. You know, I, I wasn't intending to speak on my topic today. So even a few months ago, I had some other topic in mind, which frankly I forget. And then um, that Pew Forum study came out that told us that 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. 70% of Catholics, mind you, not, not the general population, but Catholics say that Jesus is only symbolically present in the bread and the wine. Well, when I read that um, survey, I called my assistant and said, call the Congress right away. Tell them I'm changing my topic. I'm speaking on the real presence. So, thank you. See, here's the thing, everybody. Uh, one of the, you know, two or three most famous one-liners of Vatican II is that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, right? I mean, one of the great lines of the Second Vatican Council. It's the beginning and the end. There's a be-all and end-all quality to the Eucharist. It's where it all comes from, where it's all tending. And if now, what, 50-some years after the end of the council, 70% of our own people don't understand the meaning of the Eucharist, well, Anaheim, we have a problem. 
as I'm addressing this giant arena full of teachers and preachers and evangelists and catechists, something everybody has gone off the rails here. Um, so that's why I wanted to address this issue today with you. And, you know, just in the brief time we have, I'll do a little sketch. First of all, a couple of images for you. This is, oh, maybe 10 years ago or so. I was in Rome for Easter, and I went down to St. Peter's to uh, celebrate the, the great papal mass. And somehow I thought this would be a little better organized. I was, you know, distributing communion to this huge crowd. I thought they'd say, well, now you go, you know, right there and you stand. I remember the, I was sort of standing with the ciborium, and the MC went like this. Like, like just, just go. So, so off I sort of waded into this great crowd. And I had the Blessed Sacrament. And as I'm distributing, you know, the body of Christ, I think I was saying Corpus Christi because all the different languages. Corpus Christi, Corpus Christi. The hands began to stretch out to me. And people began to shout, you know, Padre, per favore, per favore, Padre, please, please. Now, I'll grant you, some of this is Italian melodrama. You know, I mean, uh, it's no accident that the opera began in Italy, right? But nevertheless, I was always struck that that gesture and that style is entirely appropriate. If we're just dealing with a bland symbol, who cares? But somehow, those good people from all over the world sense there's something here of crucial significance. There's a food here that I can't get anywhere else. And so please, please, like a starving person, that strikes me as an appropriate reaction to the Eucharist. Here's a second uh, image from Ronald Knox, the great 20th century uh, theologian and apologist. Knox said something which has always struck me. He said, let's face it, 99% of Jesus' commands are obeyed at best in the, in the breach, right? So, love your neighbor, love your enemy, pray for those who curse you, turn the other cheek. I mean, let's face it, most of us disobey Jesus' commands most of the time. But, Ronald Knox said, strangely, there is one command of Jesus that has been massively followed up and down the centuries. Despite our sin, despite our stupidity, despite all of our weakness and failure, somehow the command, do this in memory of me, has been followed, hasn't it? It's as though Christ himself realized that I just have to intervene and make sure these people do this, you know, that this is so central to what it means to be a disciple of mine. Do this in memory of me. Despite everything, we do it. And a third little vignette or a little image, and I, I'm sure by now everyone knows this story. Um, one of my great heroes, Flannery O'Connor, I think the greatest Catholic fiction writer of the last century, when she's a very young woman, is out for dinner with Mary McCarthy and other big-time New York writers. And she was a young woman, shy by nature, and she felt totally overwhelmed by this uh, um, company. She said, I felt like a dog who knows one trick but had forgotten it. <laughs> so the conversation is going on, and Mary McCarthy, who was a lapsed Catholic, but she was trying to draw O'Connor into the conversation, she knew she was a Catholic, she said to her, you know, I think the Eucharist is, um, is a wonderful symbol, to which Flannery O'Connor responded, as you well know, 
If it's only a symbol, I say to hell with it. And that qualifies her in my judgment as one of the great Eucharistic theologians of the 20th century. Now, mind you, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, you know, people that say things like that don't understand the power of symbolism. Not in her case. Are you kidding? Flannery O'Connor, one of the great symbolic masters of the 20th century. Read A Good Man is Hard to Find, read Parker's Back, read Revelation, read All That Rises Must Converge, all her great novels and stories. She fully knows the power and import of symbolic language. She knows how to create symbols, how to use them. She knows the effects they have. She knew all about symbolism. And yet she says, if that's all it is, to hell with it. She gives voice there, everybody, to something which is absolutely universal in our great tradition, across space and across time. There's something more in the Eucharist than the merely symbolic. And so the 70% of people, of Catholics, in our Pew Forum study, we got a problem if we're not teaching this truth. Okay, so here's what I propose to do in the brief time we have. I want to kind of walk us, that'll be a, a quick enough walk, through some main points in our great tradition to try to show you that there is a golden thread that runs from the Bible up to our time, affirming the reality of Jesus' presence in the Eucharist. I'm going to start, as I think all theology should start, with the Bible, John chapter 6. I'm then going to move forward to a, a very brief look at some of the church fathers from the 2nd to the 5th centuries. Then I'm going to skip to the 11th century and the debate around Berengarius. I'll get there. It's very important to understand our own time. Then I'll skip forward two more centuries to St. Thomas Aquinas and his account of the Eucharist. Then a brief look, three centuries later, at the Council of Trent. And then finally, I'll go to the 20th century, to St. Pope Paul VI, and his ringing affirmation of the real presence that took place during the last session of the Second Vatican Council. And then at the very end, what I'll do, having seen the steadiness of this teaching, try to give you a framework for understanding it, okay? Now, as you can sense from this, we're going to do a little intellectual work this morning. And you know what? Catechists and teachers and preachers, we need to do some intellectual work on this thing. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for this 70% tragedy. There are. But at least one of them is we have not been very effective at explaining, laying out this great teaching. So let's do a little, um, a little work this morning. If there's water, there is. Good. Okay, let's start with the Bible. The great text, it seems to me, in the New Testament on our issue is John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as you know, is a kind of masterpiece within the masterpiece. Just as, for example, Luke 24, I think, is a, is a mat little gem within the overall masterpiece of Luke's gospel. So the sixth chapter of John, I think, has that quality. What do we hear first? We hear of the compelling and magnetic power of the presence of Jesus. Listen. 
Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. Padre, per favore, please, please, give me the body and blood of Christ. There's something, everybody, always compelling about the authentic Christ, and we see it here. What comes next? Jesus goes up on a mountaintop. Now, any biblically alert person knows when we're talking about mountains, we're talking about a place of intense encounter, right? Where we go up, God comes down, the mountain is the meeting place of divinity and humanity. What's being described here at the beginning of John 6? But the mass, that place of most intense encounter between us and the Lord. Jesus on the holy mountain sits down and his disciples gather around him. Sitting in the ancient world was the posture of a teacher, wasn't it? So we think of a teacher standing at a podium like this, but in the ancient world, the teacher would sit and the students would literally be at his feet. That's where that comes from. So Jesus sitting on the holy mountain is Jesus now teaching. When does this happen? Every time we gather for the liturgy of the word. Is Jesus the teacher once again gathering his disciples at his feet and teaching them? But what comes next? We hear that Jesus looks up and he sees this great hungry crowd. And so he asks the disciples famously, you know, what do you have? And they bring this little pittance forward. And then Jesus multiplies it unto the feeding of that giant crowd. What's this but the liturgy of the Eucharist? Jesus wants to teach us, yes indeed, but more profoundly, he wants to feed us. How's he do it? Beautifully, by taking a little pittance that we have. Think of the gifts coming up at the offertory, right? This little tiny bit. If you set that in front of someone as physical food, it would maybe be a light meal for one person. But yet, when that little pittance is given to him, he can elevate it and multiply it under the spiritual feeding of the world. There's the liturgy of the Eucharist, Jesus feeding us with his body and blood. And then as we know beautifully, the 12 baskets of fragments left over. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 months of the year, 12 is a number of fulfillment, of completion. This is the food that will satisfy the hunger of the world. That's the point. And also the gathering up of the fragments is reminiscent of the liturgical celebration. So a beautifully laid out kind of icon of the Mass, the liturgy of the Word, the liturgy of the Eucharist. Jesus then walks on the water. We could say a lot more about that. But he comes to the town of Capernaum enters the synagogue there, and the people come after him because they're so taken by the multiplication of the loaves. And then he begins to teach again about the meaning of this spiritual food. What do we find? He says, don't hunger for these passing loaves of bread from yesterday but rather hunger for the food that lasts for eternal life. It's John 6, 27. 
Echoing, of course, two chapters previous in John 4, the story of the woman at the well. You come to this well every day, you drink and you get thirsty. I want to give you water bubbling up in you to eternal life. So it's echoed here in John 6, hunger for the bread of eternal life. Then this, John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never be hungry. Those who believe in me will never be thirsty. And then making it even more explicit. Listen now, everybody. I am the living bread come down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. The bread that I will give you is my flesh for the life of the world. The bread that I will give you is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, now, lest you think controversy about the Eucharist is a new thing, right away the crowd balks at this language. Listen, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, mind you, there's good reason for balking at this teaching. If you're a first century Jew, because scattered throughout the Old Testament, I could show you numerous texts, are prohibitions against the eating of an animal's flesh with blood. Right? Blood is life, and so you don't eat the flesh with blood. It was strictly verboten, strictly forbidden. And, and this man is saying, eat my flesh and my blood? And this is not only gross, it's theologically objectionable to the highest degree. And hence, they balk. Given, therefore, every opportunity to soften his teaching, to propose a more symbolic or metaphorical reading, what does Jesus say? Amen, amen, I say to you. So, in other words, don't miss this. Amen, amen, I say to you. This is serious stuff coming. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then, just to rub it in, for my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Now, the scholars point out to us something really interesting about this. The usual Greek word for the way human beings eat is, is phagain. It means to eat, like the way you'd gather around a table to eat. Jesus doesn't use that verb. Now remember, he's been challenged. People say, this is gross what you're saying. It's objectionable. He's got every opportunity to soften the language. But instead, he turns up the heat. Unless you, and the verb he uses is trogain. You know what trogain means in Greek? Trogain is the way an animal eats. Gnaw. Unless you gnaw on the flesh of a son of man and drink his blood, you've got no life in you. And my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Ay, ay, ay. This is serious stuff here, huh? This is something really strange going on. Now, you're a first century Jew. 
you're aware of the great scriptural tradition. What are you aware of? Symbolic talk. There's symbolic talk all through the scriptures, right? In the Psalms and in the prophets. Think even of the symbolic actions of the prophets. You know, when God tells Ezekiel or Hosea or Jeremiah to do some funny thing, and then he, then he explains the spiritual meaning of it, right? They knew all about symbolism. So if, if all he's saying here is, well, you know, yeah, just if you take in bread and wine, so you kind of take in my teaching or you take in my inspiration, it's like that. It's a symbol. I mean, who wouldn't get that? Who wouldn't find that, uh, you know, easy to understand? But when he lays this thing out the way he does, what do we hear? Because of this, many of Jesus' followers turn back and would not go with him anymore. And then that moment, I think, it's, it's something almost frightening to me about this moment. So he asked the twelve. And you, would you also like to leave? This is a kind of standing and falling point, isn't it? This teaching is like a watershed. It has been, from John 6 until the Pew Forum study, a stumbling block, a point of division, a kind of either you're with me or against me moment, isn't it? Now, as many point out, is this, just a weird coincidence or a strange bit of providence. What verse is that that I just read? It's John 6, 66. <laughs> it's John chapter 6, verse 66. Again, you know, we didn't have chapter verse when this thing was written, but that's the way it worked out. My point is, if this was just symbol talk, I don't see why anybody would be all that upset about it. Why they'd, why they'd storm away in protest. But see, Jesus doesn't compromise or soften it or give in. He says, yeah, okay, are you going to leave me too? That's John 6. I think everybody, along, of course, with the institution narratives, it's the great ground for the Catholic insistence upon what we call the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. This is not some later invention. The roots of it are right here in the Gospel of John. Okay, so from the first century, let's do a very, very rapid, just a few minutes. I'm gonna to present to you a little series of texts from the Church Fathers. Lest we're tempted to say, oh, you know, this real present stuff, that's later medieval, you know, theology, but, but the early church, people didn't believe that. Take a look at St. Ignatius of Antioch, of course, very early figure born around the year 35, died in 108. So here's someone that knew the apostles, the earliest level. Here's what he says in his letter to the Smyrnians. The Docetists abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. I don't know if it get any clearer than that. How about St. Justin the Martyr? Just a little bit later, he dies in the year 165. And I've got kind of a longer quote. I'll just read a little bit of it. Justin says, For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these, the Eucharistic elements, 
But since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so that as we have been taught the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured, both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus are present. Now, I'll, I'll grant you that's not a really elegantly formulated sentence, but you get the idea of the dense reality of the Eucharistic change. Let me skip to uh, origin of Alexandria. So we're now in the early third century. And that lovely quote from his homily on uh, the book of Exodus. He says, you're accustomed to take part in the divine mysteries, so you know how when you've received the body of the Lord, you reverently exercise every care, lest a particle of it fall, and lest anything of this consecrated gift perish. I mean, why would someone treat a mere symbol with that kind of attention? Yeah, I mean, you might show respect to a symbolic object, but that kind of almost obsessive care about the particular uh, crumb falling from the Eucharistic species. That's someone that believes in the reality of the presence. How about this now from the great Gregory of Nyssa? The bread, again, is at first common bread, but when the mystery sanctifies it, it is called and actually becomes the body of Christ. How about this from St. John Chrysostom? What is the bread but the body of Christ? What do they become who partake of it? The body of Christ. Not many bodies, but one body. Now, that's a beautiful thing, everybody. In all the church fathers, you can see it. The Eucharist is the means by which we are Christified. And they mean that, look, in both a, a both a body and soul sense. I mean, are our minds and hearts and souls Christified? Yes, but our bodies are Christified. Our, our lowly bodies are prepared for heaven by our contact with the reality of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. Okay, that's just a little, little tiny glance at the church fathers to show you that what commences in John 6 is born by the early church in an unambiguous way. Okay? With that, I'm going to leap forward now a few more centuries to the 11th century. I'm now moving into um, France, and specifically the town of Tours, central France, kind of southwest of Paris. I want to look at this figure Berengarius of Tours. Now, not a household name, but yet, trust me when I tell you, 70% of our own Catholic brothers and sisters interviewed by that Pew Forum study were basically hanging on to a Berengarian understanding of the Eucharist. So it's important for us to go back and take a look at this view. Berengarius was the head of the Cathedral School of Tours. So the, the great cathedral schools of Paris and Chartres and Tours and other places were the root of, of most of the medieval universities. We're now in the early stage of the Middle Ages. And Berengarius is the director of this, of this prominent school of Tours. 
Like a lot of his medieval colleagues, Berengarius is very interested in questions of language and logic and rhetoric. So you see this coming up through people like Thomas Aquinas later, is a, a hyper-concern for getting the language right. And again, we shouldn't despise that. That's part of our great tradition. As people are, are reflecting intellectually on the implications of faith, they, they make these distinctions and clarifications. So we shouldn't eschew that as though that's something uh, wrong. Berengarius is trying to be clear about the Eucharist. So here's the position he lays out. There is a difference, he says, between the historical body of Jesus, born of the Virgin and now reigning in heaven, and the body that appears sacramentally in the Eucharist. The latter must be a sort of symbol or figure of the former. Okay, pretty clear, huh? There's the body of Jesus, born of Mary, crucified, died, uh, risen from the dead, ascended now in heaven. There's that body. Then there's this body that appears Eucharistically, and it's best construed as a symbol, a sign, or a figure of the heavenly body of Jesus. Yeah, clear. That's, there's something always attractive about it because it's, it's kind of common, that experience. What's his scriptural warrant? It's Paul's claim in 2 Corinthians, quote, even if we have known Christ according to the flesh, henceforth we know him no more. So, all right, way back when, people knew him in the flesh, in his body, and I guess now in heaven, maybe the angels know him in his body, but we don't know him that way anymore. We have signs and symbols of his presence. Hence, Baron Garius says, when the priest says at Mass, hoc est enum corpus meum, you know, this indeed is my body, the hawk in question, the this, remains the bread. And something is added to it, namely a sort of spiritual or symbolic significance, making it a sign of Jesus' body. Okay, yeah, clear, I, I get that. That's, that's clear, symbolic sort of talk. One can say, Baron Garius goes on, that Christ is, is really present because I just mean he's spiritually present. Now, this view was propagated by Baron Garius. It was much debated. Many people joined him. But there was a fellow who opposed him. Again, not a household name. His name was L'Enfant of Beck. Now, L'Enfant was the teacher of someone who is a household name namely St. Anselm. So you see the period we're in. So L'Enfant was a teacher of Anselm. Like Anselm, he was Archbishop of Canterbury at the end of his, of his life. Anyway, L'Enfant listened to Berengarius. And he said, no, no, that's not enough. That's not a sufficient account. Grounded as he was in the Fathers, grounded as he was in John chapter 6, L'Enfant of Beck said, no, 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 that's not an adequate account of the Eucharistic presence. And so there were a series of councils and gatherings. The debate went on. And finally in 1059, 
By the way, Berengarius is 11th century, born about 1010, dies 1088, just to give you the time period. In 1059, a council is held. Berengarius' view is condemned, and he's made to swear this oath. Here's part of it. The bread and wine which are placed on the altar are, after the consecration, not only a sacrament, but the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Berengarius himself is made to swear that oath. This, everybody, is, is a neuralgic point, and it's, it's a point of, of demarcation in this great debate. What are we talking about after the consecration? As we look at, at the elements on the altar, what are we talking about? Do you ever this experience? You go to a parish and, and the people are, the ministers are taking the saboria and saying, I'm going to go to bread station four. I, I've got wine station three. That's what Berengarius would have said. This is bread and wine, now with an added symbolic significance. But listen again to the oath. The bread and wine which are placed on the altar are, after the consecration, not only a sacrament, but the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something else. They've changed at a level so fundamental that it's no longer proper to call them bread and wine. You know, many years ago, when I was in the parish, um, I distributed communion. I was back in my chair, my eyes piously closed in prayer. And I hear this voice. It was the, it was the 12-year-old server saying, Father, there's a lot of blood over there. <laughs> and <I'm>, what? <laughs> I thought someone had been cut. Someone. And what he meant was there were a lot of chalices of consecrated wine. And so after the Mass, I congratulated him on his very healthy Catholic sensibility. He was absolutely right. It's not correct to refer to the consecrated species as wine. But indeed, Father, there's a lot of blood over there. That goes right back to the Berengarius oath. Here's something else from Berengarius. His opponents, who won the day, insisted there's something more going on in the Eucharist than in the other sacraments. And again, it's not to denigrate in any way the other sacraments. But the claim here is that Berengarius' account might make sense of the other sacraments baptism, confirmation, and so on. When a spiritual virtus or power is added to material elements. But I don't say when I put oil on the forehead of a, of a kid at, at confirmation, I don't say this is no longer oil, right? Or when I pour the water on a child at baptism, I don't say afterwards, oh, this is no longer water. But I do say that in regard to the Eucharistic elements. This is no longer bread, no longer wine. Something has changed. Well, we hope you enjoyed the first half of Bishop Barron's talk on the real presence of the Eucharist. As I mentioned at the beginning, next week we'll air the second half of his talk, and that's where we get into the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, who famously defined the church's understanding of transubstantiation, or how the bread and the wine of Mass turn into the body and blood of Christ. So look forward to that. 
As we wait for that episode next week, though, I want to encourage you again to check out the Word on Fire Institute. There's so much great stuff going on in there. We've got new courses popping up. We just released Bishop Barron's new book called Centered, the Spirituality of Word on Fire, which you get for free when you join the Word on Fire Institute. And of course, Institute members have free access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs is an unbelievable deal. So sign up now at wordonfire.institute. That's the website, wordonfire.institute, and join over 10,000 other evangelists from all over the world. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week for the second half of the talk on the Word on Fire show. Thank you.